This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash political and using the promo code political. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash GabFest. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size, and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep, and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com slash GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 12th, 2016, the goofy Elizabeth Warren edition of the Gab Fest. I'm David Potts of Atlas Obscura. Joining me here in our DC studio is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Howdy, John. Hello, David. And uh, down the line is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times, who's in probably New Haven today. Hi, Emily. Hi. On this week's Gab Fest, will Donald Trump tone it down enough for the Republican establishment to make nice with him and all get along and coast to victory in November? Or will Elizabeth Warren and Paul Ryan prove his nemeses? We'll find out. Then, is Facebook manipulating its algorithm to downplay pro-conservative stories? Then we will talk about the next round in the fight over North Carolina's just simply awful anti-LGBT law. We will have cocktail chatter. There's going to be a special announcement in cocktail chatter. You've got to wait for it. You've got to hold tight for that from John Dickerson. And in Slate Plus, we will try to make sense of the Ben Rhodes profile kerfuffle. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. I hope all the people who've been involved in the Ben Rhodes kerfuffle then join Slate Plus, because then <laughs> the Slate Plus membership would probably soar to you know hundreds of thousands of new members if they all joined up. And some excellent journalists would be among them. An excellent journalist would now be Slate Plus members. They probably already are Slate Plus members. Don't forget, we have a live show coming up in Washington on July 13th at the Warner Theater. It's going to be great. It's at 7 p.m. Slate.com slash live to get tickets. Please come. It's going to be awesome. I think it's probably our our last D.C. show before the election. So it's going to be a chance to kind of get your yayas out and hurl questions at John and Emily. As we tape on Thursday morning, Donald Trump and Paul Ryan are preparing to meet and make some kind of peace. The House Speaker made headlines by announcing last week, late last week, that he was not ready to endorse Trump. Trump responded with his characteristic Pope Francis-like beneficence and quietude. Uh, he threatened Ryan. He has emphasized again and again that his success has come from being outside the party and from being, from being a bomb thrower, and he's going to continue that. 
Meanwhile, Trump has also been engaging in a Twitter flame war with Elizabeth Warren, which has raised some Democrats' hopes that she's going to be Hillary Clinton's running mate. So, Emily, is there any possibility that over the long term, but before the election, that Trump and the Republican establishment will not have rapprochement? Isn't there, doesn't there have to be some face-saving measure for everybody and they'll sort of move forward? I think there has to be. And Paul Ryan's already making all those noises, right? And and in fact, the really cynical part of me wonders if this is all just Isn't that like, all of you? Isn't that, no. Like, that's like 83% of you? No, I guess no, not. No, actually, that's you, not me. Sorry. No, there's a way in which, though, this is like such a great media narrative, right? Because there, I mean, it's like like watching a, you know, bromance or a love affair where they start out far apart and are they going to reconcile more all like paying attention to this meeting today and we have another week in which donald trump dominates media coverage and we're not talking about any real issues we're just talking about people's relationships to each other i, I think there's a lot of um a lot going on here so in the way that trump is dealing with ryan it's a template or it's the first test of how he's going to deal in washington Regardless of what the outcome is, a lot of it show he's captured a lot of the coverage during this week. And I think all of us have to think about how we're going to go forward. And and I haven't figured it out yet, but what the theory of covering Trump is. Because in the last election cycle, we tried hard to not cover whatever the shiny object of the moment was. Because we knew it was, it was both evanescent and also because we knew that it didn't have anything to do with the real issues that should be in conversation. We now have that problem times like a thousand. Now, having said that, what's the game here? I think you've got it probably pretty right, which is that Donald Trump takes the maximalist position. And then if he and Ryan come to some kind of unity, whatever the heck that means, then people will say, wow, you know, he can do it. He can do this thing that we worried that he wasn't able to do, which is how could he build a bridge between his bombastic kind of go it alone campaign and the power structure in Washington. Um, but wait, John, I, I want to push on you for a second. Why is that a game? I actually don't think it's a game at all. I think it's, there's a really oh, profound philosophical sure. question about whether Donald Trump yes, yes, and whether the Republican Party is willing to that's reconcile itself to Donald Trump. That's where I was going next. So regardless of whether they come out and say they're unified today or there's some future, future unifying moment later, neither one of them will be uh, legitimate because on the signature issues of the day, on both the way – uh, Paul Ryan looks at the world, thinks the world should work, and thinks politicians should behave. And then on the specific issues of immigration, entitlements, taxes, trade, he is on the exact opposite end of the issue spectrum from Donald Trump. There's no amount of meetings you can have to bridge those differences unless Donald Trump comes out and says, everything I said in the campaign, all the things that got those people riled up so much at the rallies. It was all totally wrong. I've completely switched. If if one or the other reconciles, let's say the Republican Party essentially, the Republican Party establishment as embodied by Ryan and McConnell and these various people who are snuffling around Trump, if they say, oh, yes, we support him and we, you know, we think he's really energizing the party and yes, we, we, we're going to carry him forward, doesn't that reflect a cynicism and abandonment of Republican principles that the party will pay for in the long term or not? I don't know. It depends. So let's imagine they do that for the short term to just do away with what is – Ryan's getting – there are two camps of response to Ryan from his – based on the conversations I've had with, based on his members. And that's the other thing. Paul Ryan is not an island to himself. He's got to worry about 
this agenda that he was working on that he thought he'd have a little more time to work on before there was a Republican nominee, which he still wants to save. He was hoping to have a House Republican agenda that they could push on their own, irrespective of who the candidate is. The problem is the agenda they were working on is totally the the opposite of what the candidate is running on. So that's one problem. But the challenge for Ryan is, okay, let's say for a moment I have to do the political thing, which is to get to appear unified. They can make that bet now, but he's then going to have to actually work with the president and actually have to get, um, you know, it's going to come apart any minute. You can say that you're unified, but until you actually, and because Paul Ryan is different than John Boehner, when Boehner ran on a platform to get his House members reelected, it was gauzy and fuzzy and Ryan has for his career and more recently been saying only unless we are very specific about what we're running on can we build a mandate and then govern. You may not agree with that idea of governing, but that's his idea. So he can't suddenly get super vague about policy. Um, But can't he say we're a big tent party? I'm not the presidential nominee, like and just sort of ease off, like melt into the background a little bit. I mean, sure, if he wants to be totally ineffectual, but the if, if you, <laughs> I'm sure that's. I mean, he if wants. he wants to just hand over his, you know, if in conversations that I've had with him and in people who know him, he does care about these ideas. He does want that to see them implemented. So I think what you just described would mean basically saying, "I'm just going to like basically blow all that off and, and well, hope but to I'm get saying just." You just that he would do that till November and then he would secretly hope that Trump loses and that will only reaffirm his own ascendancy and then he'll start planning to become the nominee in 2020. This would be, you know, like putting on an itchy sweater for six months. Right. His his feeling is you campaign on specifics in the election and then once you've won by the election, then you get to implement the stuff you've done. So he's giving up what for him is an important sales moment, which is the campaign. Right. And so I just think that... that, Right, and especially especially since presumably Trump is going to lose, if the Republican establishment somehow manages to find a way to distance itself from Trump, I think that once Trump loses, the Republican Party will not have suffered any great loss. That that Trump will be forgotten, he'll uh, be be footnoted... mm. I think they will immediately immediately they will turn to they'll immediately turn to just taking on Hillary Clinton and slamming Hillary Clinton and the base will get excited again. And and it will be a forgotten moment. I think if the base I think if the people who are supporting Trump (laughs) like the noises you guys are making. We're trying. John's making whimpering noises and Emily, you're speaking. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm still trying to talk. I think if the people who are supporting Donald Trump, who are not necessarily tried and true Republican voters, feel like the Republican establishment distanced themselves and made him lose and they'll be looking for people to blame, then it could have more lasting ramifications and cause more lasting damage to the Republicans and to Paul Ryan specifically. Like if he is seen as weak need and the person who hand waved while Donald Trump lost, there'll be this like lost cause feeling about the election. Mm-hmm. That, right. You were never with us. You undermined us. And all the and, yes. and for the group of people who were already in a position, by the way, my, the the Trump candidacy in the Republican Party was founded on disappointment with the elites. So they are ready to believe and already do believe that that 
Ryan and Romney and all these people are trying to undermine Trump. Well, Ryan and Romney and and the Republican establishment can choose they can choose to capitulate and then and give in and become a white nationalist party with mercantilist grotesque trade views and uh <laughs> Surrender the party, or they can, Gee, or they can choose to say we're, we're we we are a a party that represents certain really generally pretty terrible ideas, uh, alternately terrible ideas in the world. But those are the ideas that we actually believe. I don't think they can. I actually don't think there is a there's a cogent Republican Party which reconciles both of these I views. Mean, so my view, my own taste would be well. Republicans should like pick pick their horse and stay with it and have a belief system that makes sense because there's no they can't govern this way. I think that's right. The alter- the other alternative is that Donald Trump just casts aside all the stuff he was saying. I don't it doesn't look like he's going to do that either temperamentally or policy wise. So before we get to Elizabeth Warren, I want to talk briefly about a really interesting story by Tom Edsel in The New York Times this week about the difference between how Trump polls when it's a real person taking the poll and when it's a computer or an electronic poll. And it turns out that he polls much better when it is when you're not speaking to a real person. And the theory that Edsel lays out is, of course, that people are embarrassed to admit it. They just don't want to say to another person that they support this divisive, prejudicial, horrible candidate. Yet they'll go out and vote and they actually do support it. It, it got me thinking about something, which is I'm going to try to express it as clearly as I can. Trump is really good at getting people's fear. He attaches himself to people's fear, reflexes, fear instincts, and he's very good at it. And all of us, every one of us has kind of darkness and horror and anger in our souls. And for the most part, civilization is the act of suppressing that and putting on a smile and like being kind to others, even despite all the darkness that we have. And that I feel that what Trump has done is sort of validated the speaking, the utterance of all that dumb shit stuff that people want to have in their soul. But actually, the purpose of civilization, in fact, the purpose of politics is kind of to suppress that. You, you can sort of say, oh, this is our essential being. Of course we should speak it. This is how what we feel. But some feelings actually shouldn't be expressed. Some feelings shouldn't be released from the cage that you hold them in. And I worry that Trump has, has justified, has allowed a kind of the hatefulness that's in all of us to feel validated, to see the light and walk in, walk in daylight. And that worries the hell out of me. Do you think then that two things? One, that people need a hot stove moment in order to be reminded of why we have some of the conventions we have and norms that we have. Yeah, as long as um, he loses, as long as the stove gets turned off. Yeah, that, but then the question is, does that, do people get the message? Yeah, and then the second thing is people, what you describe, David, as the the things that are suppressed for the common good, there are a whole host of people out there who believe those sets of norms are not to suppress the id and um, base instincts within us, but to basically, they're a tool for people who've just figured out how to use those norms to feed their basest instinct, which are their greed and their nest feathering. And so when you see those norms, instead of thinking, oh, right, that's what keeps us from being savages, the response is, no, that's what's getting that guy whatever he wants, and it's screwing me. And it's right. not so, wrong. No, right, right, and they're not. That's the other side of this. This I, Ross Douthat, I thought, wrote a good column about this over the weekend, that you can reject Donald Trump because in his, like, florid, 
odiousness. But then there's this, as you were saying earlier, David, this way in which he's tapping straight into people's anxieties. And those are real anxieties that the political system should be grappling with much more than it is. And this is where I always feel like there's this, um, you know, right meets the left with the Bernie Sanders supporters. For sure. For sure. But it's, uh, well, for one thing, I'm I'm not a true Democrat. I'm a Republican in, in the old time sense, which is that I actually do believe that there's a that we we need uh, the saucer of tea. You need you need actually need to cool the passions of the people. That it's very terrible to have that populism is the worst possible form of government because it because we are so all of us are so filled with anger and rage all the time. And if you can animate it and activate it, it becomes really dangerous. And that's why you need these intermediaries. And Trump is threatening to sort of strip that out of the system. You you guys are both right. It, it's not that they the resentments people feel don't have some justifiable basis. And it's not that there aren't horrible people exploiting it and taking advantage of it for their greed. It's just that the populist solution and the rageful solution is has so much downside. We're going to regret it if we go there. There was some of this talk during the Obama ascendancy in 2008, which is that when you elect somebody based uh, just on this kind of hero worship that was going on behind Obama, that was supposed to be the warning along the lines of just what you're saying, which is that you're not thinking that, no, but that you elect somebody based on all the wrong feelings. There's some of that in some of the never Trump caution, but it's almost like it's a talking point that people who dislike Trump for other reasons are using. Um, Let's quickly touch on Elizabeth Warren. So she and Donald Trump have been going at it on Twitter at real Donald Trump, your policies are dangerous, your words are reckless, your record is embarrassing, and your free ride is over. (laughs) And then he's countering with goofy Elizabeth Warren and tweaking her about her supposed Native American heritage. Classic bully behavior, I think. So, Emily, this has raised prospects of, or raised talk that, that Warren would be a great running mate for Clinton because she's so, such a tough fighter, and because she channels some of the Sanders wing of the party, and that would fold them in uh, with Hillary Clinton. What what do you make of that talk? Well, I'm embarrassed by my own initial reaction, which I'll share, even though I probably shouldn't, which was to be like, no, the country can't handle a ticket with two women. That's way too much. And then I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm feeling that way. And why does that have to be true? And there are all these good potential arguments that Warren could actually help Hillary Clinton with younger women, with single women, with groups of female voters who are not necessarily clear Clinton supporters and Clinton's going to need a lot of women. And that obviously plays into Trump's bad reviews among female voters. And I started getting kind of into this idea, although it, it seems it does seem implausible to me. It doesn't seem to me like Hillary would necessarily go for Warren. And the whole question of whether Warren would upstage Clinton, I think, would be a real concern for the Clinton campaign. And then there's the problem of like losing a Senate seat since Massachusetts has a Republican governor who would appoint her replacement. I just don't see the rationale for the Elizabeth Warren candidacy on any level, both because she's her own person and she would have to sublimate herself as vice president even more than other vice presidents have. Um, Hillary Clinton doesn't need her in the tent to be effective in doing what she's doing with Donald Trump right now. Um, she's kind of more know, useful, arguably, as exactly. like a, right, outside that, that's weapon. That's exactly right. Do, They're not particularly close. Right, it's right. not a, there's not a kind of... T- they, those are very good points. Do you think there's any chance that Hillary would pick a woman, to Emily's point? Or that he, well, then I couldn't think of a single other guy. person, I have to say. And there, and like there, I mean, I don't know. It didn't seem like there was a really 
good other option. I mean, what is the biggest target that Hillary Clinton would try to hit by with her vice presidential nominee? I mean, picking vice presidents for geographical reasons doesn't help. So what do you think? Latino voters, male, white male voters? Do you pick it by the voting group? Do you pick it by the, you know, what are the, what's just what's the criteria? That'll be fascinating to watch. Okay, let's leave uh, leave Donald Trump there and Hillary Clinton there. Now a word from our first sponsor this week, which is Casper. Life is exhausting, so you shouldn't just settle for an okay night's sleep. Get a fantastic night's sleep with Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered American-made mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. And you can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. There's free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using promo code political. Terms and conditions apply. Facebook is catching hell this week after a story in Gizmodo alleged that the company manipulates its trending topics feature to exclude conservative news stories and outlets, to also suppress news about Facebook itself, and to inject liberal-leaning stories into the feed. Gizmodo's story is based on interviews with anonymous former so-called curators who worked for Facebook or technically actually worked for some contract company that uh, these folks didn't like how they were treated, didn't much seem to like Facebook, and were glad to to complain anonymously about it. It raised a furor in conservative media and also grumbling among other folks, especially among journalists who deplore Facebook's control over all that we see and also its, its black box nature, its, its, its refusal to be transparent about how it operates. So um, what, briefly, what is, what is this trending topics and why is it important, Emily? If you're signed onto Facebook in the right corner or on the right side, there's a list of trending news topics that people click on because there are stories there and people are using Facebook as their conduit into the news. And so what is up top on those lists, both in terms of the subject matters and the particular outlets that are being linked to, matters a great deal for traffic. And it matters for the news stories people see and they're individually curated. So it can change depending on how the algorithm interacts with you. So there's like layers of potential potential manipulation here. Um, and as Farhad Manju wrote a good com about this today, I thought, like, we don't even exactly know. And it would be very, I don't know how I'm going to figure out what, how Facebook is um, tweaking its algorithm for individual users, because it is changing all the time. And it's different depending on um, who you are as a Facebook user. What's the big deal, John, if like a thing which is a major source of news for lots of people, you know, it has some editorial bias? And assuming this is true, and it's not even clear that it is true, but why would that be a big deal? Because it has pretensions to be the opposite. And it's a black box. We have no idea what standards they're using. And they don't say or explain. Executives at Facebook have, they're presenting themselves as an alternative to all that's wrong with the the mainstream media. So if you're going to do that, you have to, your standard. Would it be better that Facebook's algorithm and the news it's showing to people is infused with human intelligence based on the kind of biases and knowledge of the people they've hired or that it's 
coldly algorithmic and that it's only the robots scouring news sources and even the validity of those news sources is algorithmically rated and that there's no human intelligence, which is the better universe. I would probably rather live in the humanly curated universe, but I don't care which universe it is. I just want to every I want there to be transparency about it. So I think the problem right now is that the word algorithm and the way in which trending topics appears make it seem like it's, you know, straight from the popular gut. And it feels like it's organic and not controlled. And instead, it turns out there is some monkeying around with it going on. And if we knew what the standards were for that shaping, that'd be fine. Like we don't expect the, you know, homepage of any news outlet to not be based on a set of human choices. Of course, news outlets choose which stories to promote and how to put headlines on them and who to link to. And that's how it goes. But there is no tradition of journalistic standards at Facebook. In fact, as John said, this, the company usually acts like it has a lot of contempt for the media. And so the notion that it's trying to have it both ways, that I really find problematic. News is one of 75 things that Facebook does and is attempting to dominate the world with. And it is not at all surprising to me that they would be making experiments and that these experiments that they're not fully documenting and publicizing exactly what these experiments are because they are private business and they don't have to. Nor does the, the New York Times. I don't think is the New York is every editorial meeting at the New York Times. They send out a memo afterwards. Here's what we no, decided. No, but the basic I mean, structure that there are editorial meetings, like you can read all about that at length if you go look at the ethical standards. We know what that process is and we don't know what the process is at Facebook. And I, I feel like you're being super dismissive. Sure, it's not surprising that they're not doing this, but this is affecting how lots of people take in the news. I guess I don't see this as like some massive crime against the public or against journalism or even against conservatives. Why is it so why is how has everyone been so damaged by it? Why well, is John I think it's Thune uh, yeah. holding hearings about it. Uh, well, that's a sl- that's a totally different thing is whether there's any role for the government in I'm not yeah. quite sure what's the argument for why there should be investigations into it from, from well, it's, the government it, There's an argument against it, which is like this yeah. is a First Amendment issue. I don't think yeah, the government like, should be investigating it. So, But then the second thing I think is certainly for, for conservatives, they feel like this is of a piece. This is just more proof that there is – that what is presented as fair is actually – tilted to screw conservatives and that's they felt that about the mainstream media for a very long time and now this other thing that is replacing it in a lot of people's lives because conservatives you know are in facebook and twitter and that world too and so they they feel like it's a neighborhood where they thought the rules were one thing and it turns out the rules are actually subtly against them and the public doesn't appreciate that that right. would bug me too if i were them here here i think i've identified why i find this to be such a tempest in a teapot the the we live in an age a media efflorescent age there is so much choice and yes facebook is is a disproportionate player in this and they certainly guide a lot of traffic but the idea that americans are sort of being deprived of massive news choice because facebook has tweaked some one feature on one page for one website seems to me so Missing the forest, which is the the forest is that there is just an enormous variety and access to media today that there wasn't 
10, 20, 40 years ago for most Americans. That's the thing we should marvel at is that there's so much available to everybody at every But aren't instant. you underestimating how many people get their news, make their choices directly from Facebook and based on the default settings in Facebook? I mean, I know people who that is like absolutely you know, where their news comes Emily, from and they you know only people, see what's there. No, they see what, yeah, sure, they see what's there. But you know what? They're, if, they're, if they're liberals, they're getting, you know, confirmatory liberal stories sent to them at all times. If they're conservatives, they're getting, because their friends are sending them stuff and facebook's algorithm knows that i mean my my mother-in-law who's constantly sending you know a barrage of sort of israel under attack stories like i'm sure everyone in her universe is getting israel under attack stories and is like has the sense that israel is constantly under attack and that's because they they're self a self-confirming bias because of their the facebook friend network they exist in and tomorrow facebook could wave a magic wand and change the algorithm and those people would see different things and then the day after that facebook could decide that like most of us should vote and push us all to vote or it could subtly you know send some messages that pushes up to us to vote for democrats or for republicans that is a huge amount of power for a private company to have i mean i sound like a kind of paranoid right now but you, i do you think that's like, like a, a real thing but it's real <laughs> well i'm not saying that facebook i'm not saying that facebook will act in in the public interest at all i don't think it will and i think you're right that it will manipulate the algorithm but i think there is there is just such an overwhelming amount variety of media and ways to communicate that media to your friends okay so facebook is no longer sending you your, the stories about israel but you know what you can go on twitter and just put in a hashtag which is like you know uh, defenseless israel hashtag defenseless israel and god knows you're going to get lots of stories about that they're going to confirm well, of the course if you go out and you know look, the but people you, you forgetting the power Instagram. of the nudge thesis and default settings the, and how when people just oh, have their but, habits i why are you like ignore no seriously don't get like scornful of me why are you like if the elephant in the middle of the room, if the elephant in the middle of the room of media diet is this private company, which is making all these decisions and having an effect, why is that like not matter? Just because people could go around it if they chose when we know that a lot of them are not. Right. Well, because. Thank because you, I, Because, Emily, <laughs> yes. the, the trending topics is one small piece of it. I would be more troubled what? if it, I, I would oh. be more troubled if there was evidence that Facebook, w- when you were sharing things with your friends and it noticed that you were sharing conservative stuff and it was saying, well, we don't like those conservatives, so we're not let them share and they're going to get down downgraded in the algorithm. If that were happening, that's but a, maybe like it a is slightly... happening. We have no idea what's happening. That's the point. The company is a black box. But it doesn't have tr- an affiliation or allegiance to traditional journalistic standards in making these choices. And we have you know what? no Actually, idea you know what? what it's I don't doing. Ca- you know what? For, forget it. I don't even care if they'd want to do that they can do that too because they're a private company there's <laughs> okay, you know what there is fine. there is like go if you were interested in in those conservative stories go to the daily caller go to drudge go to fox it's <sighs> not like when there was one newspaper and and three networks and that was how it lived right that is uh, not it is a different world and, right uh, that's all i think that's all true but if you are a person who assumed that facebook was feeding you essentially a kind of straight up the middle to the extent that's possible view of what was in the news that day and then and then there's a question of what should be in the news that day which is another question then you feel like you've been ripped off so the only right. thing that makes me feel last better word, here is that you. the guest thank you i will take the last word the only thing that is reassuring to me is the idea that people could gain a better grasp of the way in which facebook is manipulating things and is not some pure neutral algorithm so that maybe they will vote with their feet and go look for other kinds of media sources that would be a good outcome all right now let's hear from our next sponsor this week which is ZipRecruiter. 
finding the right job candidates for your company is crucial. The human capital of a, of a company is the most important thing that a company has. And having the right mix of people and the right kinds of talents working for you is, is critical if you have a business. And that means that posting in one place isn't enough to find the best employees for your team. And that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to over 100 job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 800,000 businesses. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. The Department of Justice and the state of North Carolina are dueling over the state's idiotic HB2 anti-LGBT slash bathroom law. The Department of Justice has sued the state to st- – well, Emily's going to explain exactly what they're suing to Everybody's do. suing everybody. Everyone's suing. The state is countersuing. The state stands to lose billions of dollars in federal funds if it loses. It's already losing – it seems to be losing millions in business from companies that oppose the law and are taking or choosing not to do things in North Carolina they might otherwise have done. Emily, remind us kind of what the law is and what it would do and also what the – DOJ action is based on what what it's what it could be. Well, you have to start here with Title IX, the Civil Rights Act, and talk about the idea of discrimination because of sex. Traditionally, that was understood to be male versus female, and there's always been a provision in the law that while governments can't discriminate for no reason on the basis of sex, they were allowed to provide separate facilities, including restrooms for men and women, because there was just assumed to be this binary gender division. And the Department of Justice issued new guidelines in which they said that they were interpreting because of sex to allow for trans people to choose their gender identity, and which bathroom they would go to. This started in um, an argument going on with schools that were denying access to bathrooms to students who identified with um, the gender that was not the gender of their birth. There's been litigation over this in North Carolina, which means that the federal appeals court that um, has jurisdiction over North Carolina has recently issued a ruling on this. So I read the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision this morning. If you read the court ruling, I found it quite reassuring. They're just applying normal old federal and state court standards to how you decide whether to defer to an agency interpretation of a law and a new regulation. And basically, if there's ambiguity, if the agency has a fair reading of the law, if it all seems like they kind of took a close look and are exercising their judgment, then courts defer to agency readings. And in this case, I should say there was a two to one split, but the majority opinion says, well, look, because of sex doesn't necessarily break down purely, you know, we know now that there are lots of different categories of people, small number, but different ways in which people's gender identity doesn't match up in all the expected ways. And The Department of Justice was trying to figure out, or maybe it was the Department of Education, I can't remember, but they were trying to figure out like how to resolve those ambiguities, and they picked this way to go, and it is a legitimate way to go. So that's the reason why North Carolina, the the state and the University of North Carolina 
could be in a lot of trouble for trying to deny transgender people access to the bathroom, trouble in the form of losing their federal funding. The governor of North Carolina is arguing that, um, you know, the federal government has no business making this kind of interpretation. And those arguments really remind me of the arguments against gay marriage that failed, which is like we've essentially we've never done it this way before. And there's some vague idea of public safety out there that's being threatened, even though that, uh, you know, there's just that is not a real thing, but it gets invoked kind of hovering. So that's where we are in this um, in this dispute. And it's such an interesting clash between federal and state power and interpretation of the law and, you know, figuring out like how far is Loretta Lynch, the attorney general and the Obama administration willing to go? And also how far is the Republican governor of North Carolina, Pat McGrory, willing to go in? And maybe this is great politics for everyone. I can't quite decide. But yeah, Emily, beyond the bathroom, though. Yeah. The bathroom issue. Isn't there a larger case around the whole law that the law is the law because the law isn't just about the bathroom law is about the ability of towns and to counties in North Carolina to pass to have protections for LGBT people in general and sort of be able to make employment claims and things like that. And that the law, the overall law itself, there's a claim that that's unconstitutional because it's it's infused with an animus towards and by animus, I mean or I guess legally we mean specific sort of targeted prejudice against a particular group that is unacceptable, right? That's it, which is that a whole separate line of thinking? Yes. It's not just that the animus is unacceptable. If indeed courts find that the law was motivated by animus, and it sure looks like that to me, it is unconstitutional based on a 1996 important Supreme Court decision called Romer versus Evans, which has a very similar set of facts. Um, I think we've maybe talked about this on the show before, but same dynamic, except in Colorado of like overturning local ordinances that were protective of gay rights in the name of in the name of I don't know what, in the name of like the state government decides it doesn't like those groups. So, John, no one wants to be whacked as a bigot. No one wants to be told they're dumb and behind the times and retrograde. This North Carolina law has got to go. It's going to go in one way or another. What's the way for that law to go? And and still respect the feelings of people. Yeah, and also to allow people to save face around it. I don't know. I mean, I think what's complicated is it it has to go in a legal way. In other words, there's not a political Mm -hmm. uh, exit that – I mean, the political exit will have to kind of form around whatever the legal exit is. Is there an off-ramp, Emily, that that allows some – way for people who because this is as we've talked about before this is not about just public bathrooms it's about the sense of encroachment that people feel has taken place and they that they always feel is taking place i mean this is encroachment uh, of what exactly well encroachment of a set of values that they find uh that make them Mm -hmm. uncomfortable is there a legal response that allows people who don't like the progress of things are they just going to have to suck it up when it gets over, you know, when it gets overturned or or put aside? I'm not really sure what the off ramp is. Some of the quotes are just filled with hate, and there's just no other way to put it. They're so cruel and such a misunderstanding of transgender identity. It just made me really sad to read them. And so I don't know how you find a way to not tell those people that like, sorry, but they're wrong and they are behind the times or at least like the government isn't going to countenance that kind of prejudice. 
we've had other moments in history where we've said to people, your racial prejudice, your prejudice against women, whatever, is just like not acceptable. And we're not going to go along with it as a society. We just, obviously, we're still having this argument about gay marriage in some way, though it, in, in other ways, it subsided remarkably quickly, at least in most of the country. Now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Trunk Club. Shopping takes forever. No one has time for it. I don't. You probably don't. And now it's spring, so you need light shirts and comfortable shorts, right? With Trunk Club, you don't ever have to set foot in a store, and you get your very own stylist. Trunk Club makes it easy to look your best in clothes that fit. They'll pick your clothes from over 80 top brands and ship them right to your door. Keep what you like, send back what you don't. Shipping is always free, and you have 10 days to try on the clothes risk-free. You can even visit a Trunk Club clubhouse where a stylist works with you in person for free. Premium clothes, expert advice, and a custom look thanks to your very own personal stylist at Trunk Club. Get started today at trunkclub.com slash gabfest. That's trunkclub.com slash gabfest. Remember, trunkclub.com slash gabfest. Now let's go to Cocktail Chatter. There's going to be a special, special surprise coming up in Cocktail Chatter. I'll go first today. I'm going to go first, and then Emily, and then John. How about that? So my chatter is a story about uh, Maine Governor Paul LePage. Maine Governor Paul LePage is a, just a font of horribleness. He's a consistently says dumb, quasi-racist things. He just is a bully. He's he's going to end up in the Trump cabinet. Prediction number one. He'd probably be Trump's running mate, but. He did something this week that was so, or last week, that was, it was really, it was classic. He adopted a Jack Russell Terrier, a rescue dog. He, he adopted it from um, the Greater Androscoggin Humane Society. That's very nice. He named the dog Vito because he likes to veto legislation so much. Then it turned out that how he adopted the dog, he'd adopted the dog by cutting the line at the Humane Society. The dog had been put up for adoption. It was going to go up on Wednesday. LePage shows up there on Tuesday and says, I like your dog that you're putting up for adoption on Wednesday. And the Humane Society kind of said, okay, go ahead, take take the dog. Meanwhile, the, there's this woman who'd been planning for a really long time to adopt this dog. She'd heard about the dog. She was gonna, she was like gonna be there first thing, 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning to adopt the dog. And she was gonna use it as an emotional support animal. She was a victim of sexual assault. And just is heartbroken because this dog that she'd set her cap on was stolen by the governor. Just a, it's just a perfect story of entitlement. <laughs> Emily, what is your chatter? I am also um, shaking my fist in my chatter. I'm really interested in a lawsuit against Frontier Airlines brought by four female pilots who have not been given a way to use their breast pumps at work. This is like a, just a serious continuing problem. And I feel like, first of all, breast pumps are just no fun. Breastfeeding, great. <laughs> breast pumps, horrible. And you, the last thing you need is to be stressing out during the day over where and how you're possibly going to like go do this on your own. And they're not alone, this airline, in not doing this. And there have been some rotten court decisions in the other direction, not to mention that Donald Trump, I will have to bring up, once called a lawyer disgusting for requ requesting a break to pump milk. <laughs> And uh, and then the other thing about this that dismayed me is that Frontier Airlines makes pregnant women take eight weeks of unpaid maternity leave before their due date. Now, 
It is true that people in their eighth and ninth months of pregnancy are not advised to fly. But there's no way that these women can do any kind of paid assignments. And that makes it really hard to take their unpaid maternity leave after they have babies. The whole thing just puts me into a state of some despair over the over the state of pregnancy discrimination law and accommodation in this country. And um, I really hope that uh, these women win their suit. John, what's your chatter? Well, uh, my chatter is a, is a, the is the ultimate result of all the previous chatters. So, because the wonderful Gabfest audience over the years has been so um, supportive and encouraging about all those historical shaggy dog stories that I've told, I, um, with Andy Bowers's help and the now the help of legions of wonderful people, created Whistle Stop, which has been incredibly fun for me, and the feedback has been wonderful. So I decided to write a book about it, and that book will be out on the 2nd of August. It will be um, a collection of some of the Whistle Stop stories people have heard before, but with a great deal more research from our Cracker Jack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, and an, an even bigger team of people working on it. The chapters, one of them is running in Slate today on Goldwater in 1964 and the Stop Goldwater movement, since we're in a never-Trump moment. Um, and then there will be new chapters as well with um, stories that we haven't yet heard in the Whistle Stop podcast. But the Whistle Stop podcast will continue on, as it always does, with new stories. But now there will just be a book on August 2nd, which you can now go order. One thing we could do is we might be have a book plate that, people, that I would send people with a signature and a lovely little note if they showed me proof of purchase. But if somebody out there has a better idea about um, what special offer we can make to uh, GabFest listeners, send us a note at gabfest at slate.com. That's gabfest at slate.com. And can I just log roll for this book? The Whistle Stop has been my favorite new podcast of the year. And the idea of it being a book form is great. The Whistle Stop is so good. They are already, they are just such coherent stories. And I can't wait to um, see what we do with it. Thank you. And John yeah, is so wonderfully engaged and obsessed with this history. It's really fun to listen to. And, think and it's been a blast to... Um, to write, it's been <laughs> it's uh, it's been it's been a lot of uh, long hours between all this other stuff. But it is it's um it's between really all of this other so stuff. Fun. You mean your yeah. extremely demanding, <laughs> high profile job <laughs> and the time you spend with us and whatever else you do. <laughs> I do. I did like in the gold in the stop Goldwater whistle stop when you talked about when you have a stop whatever movement, you can be pretty sure that it's going to fail. It isn't going to work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just finished some stuff about 1824 and you just hear the same statements echoed from different pockets of our, of our presidential race, just over and over again through, through American history, which is really fun. And, uh, it's been a delight, and I'm I'm excited so, for it to be out in the world. So it's it's the what's the book called? To pre-order can, now. It's called Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop, My, and it's on Amazon. And and it's on Amazon now. They can go uh, order a copy this instant if they wish. Good. Our intern for one last week or so is El Biscard Church. We thank you to all who applied for our internship. We had great candidates, and we have we've picked a a really good successor for El. But we appreciated getting to know all of you who applied. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network, and you can check out the entire roster of Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash Gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest, and our email address is Gabfest at Slate.com. 
Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Please do that. It helps. I noticed we dropped off on the iTunes rankings because people aren't commenting and rating enough. And don't forget to come to our Washington live show on July 13th. Get tickets at slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.